This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. We're in here. Let's open it in our Bibles to Jude. We're going to be in three verses this morning. Jude's a little book right before Revelation. And I'm going to tell you right now, we have Bible work to do today. Lots of it. Before I began to preach through this little book, I figured of the, the segments that we would break Jude into, this would be probably the most difficult to understand. And after living in here for a week, I, I, I'm, I'm convinced I was not wrong. And even if we, we get into this, and understand what Jude is saying, I don't think it's simple always to apply. But there's good news here. And that's that, basically, it's, it's somewhat of, of a presumption on my part, but here's what I think can happen if we give ourselves to this this morning. If we get in here and we do the work, really understand these verses we will come away from them with, with something very powerful. Uh, and this applies to lots of things in life, but especially Bible reading. When you have to work hard for something, when it doesn't come easy to you, if you can achieve it, the benefit, the reward, the victory is so much sweeter than if it came to you simply. Isn't that true? Isn't what we work for better to achieve than what's just sort of given to us? And Bible reading works this way. Um, There are so many glorious truths in the Bible that are simple and easy to understand. And and praise God for that. He has often just spoon-fed our feeble minds. He's so gracious and good to do that. But there are also parts of the Bible that require us to dig deep, to put in the work, and there's just as much glory there too when we get in there and we wrestle. And I would argue that there's, there's actually an additional sweetness of finding something that, that wasn't readily obvious when we were just kind of skimming along. So we're going deep into this this morning but there's a, sweet, uh, there's a sweetness to what we'll find in here if we apply ourselves to this. And, and just kind of all by way of introduction, you, you have to understand, if, if you're newer with us, we're a church that loves the Bible. And because we're Bible people, we want to hear the Bible, we want to know the Bible, and we want to obey the Bible. So let's read the Bible, and let's put our hard hats on because it's time to get to work. So Jude, verse 8 Through verse 10, listen, follow along in your own Bible. If you didn't bring one, grab the one in the rack in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, take it home. We want you to have a good Bible that you feel comfortable reading. Follow along as I read this. Jude, starting at verse 8. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, 
the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. That's the word of the Lord. So I think the best way to do this is just to go line by line, and even at points we're just going word by word this morning. I keep saying this about you. One of the great things about reading a small book, you can read this book in, in its entirety in five minutes, which means you can make all kinds of great connections, which means you can, you can see things that will come to the surface readily here. But I don't want you to just get lost as we go word by word through this. So let me just at the outset tell you where we're going to end up. Here's what I think these verses mean for us to hear. If you're a note taker, if you're, if you're just a, a big idea person, just get this one. Because this is everything I'm going to say this morning. What we're meant to hear in here is do not follow the ungodly, stay with Jesus. Do not follow the ungodly, stay with Jesus. So that's the short version. Here's the longer one. The longer thing that it says here is pay attention, pay careful attention, so that you are not persuaded, desensitized, or infatuated with ungodliness that will, that will lead to your destruction. And Jude is pleading with us to know the right place to be, which is under God's gracious care. Again, the shorter version is don't follow the ungodly. ungodly. Stay with Jesus. Now, to start in verse 8, we have to go back to verse 4. Here's where you can make all the connections. So here it says... In like manner, these people also, you know, dot, 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 and then it goes on. It's verse 4 that helps us to identify what these people are doing, and then verses 5 through 7 that, ha- that help us to say, well, what is the like manner that they're doing it in? So in verse 4, these people are identified as those who have crept into the circle of the church, but they're not true members of the church And four says that they're designated for condemnation. It says that they pervert the grace of God and they deny Jesus as Lord. In short, it just sort of summarizes all of that by calling them ungodly. And then verses five to seven give examples from the history of God's people to show what their ungodliness looks like. Namely, It says that ungodliness is seen in unbelief, in rebellion, and in immorality. And the thing to notice there is how Jude talks about those sins. The the early assumption, if you're you're just going to listen in a church about ungodliness, if people are going to call these people who are ungodly, your natural inclination is to think that we're talking about somebody out there. But Jude's very point is that this ungodliness is not coming from out there. They've crept into the church. It's not coming from someplace else. It's coming from within themselves. And if they're not vigilant, if we're not vigilant to watch out for it, the same thing will happen to us. 
It may be among us, in fact, before we even realize it, if we're not careful to look for it early. And that's where verses 8 to 10 pick it up. So the previous section, 5 to 7, that's examples from the past. If you look at those words, they're all past tense. Now Jude switches to the present tense. And so he says, this is how to spot these things now. So again, put your eyes in your Bible and look at what it says. In like manner, these ungodly people also, that's, that's all present tense. These, they're doing it right now. And then he says, relying on their dreams. That's kind of the, the overarching thing. So they're relying on their dreams and they do three things. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, verses 5 to 7 took us back to two places in Genesis and is shortly after the Exodus. For Jude's readers, that was a jump backwards of 1,500 to 2,000 years. Now he's saying those same types of sins that were among the people then are among them today. And so they can't say, they, they can't say, well, what does this, what, Jude, what does this have to do with us? That was like 2,000 years ago. So Jude's saying, in like manner, in the same way, this is happening among you right now. And I love the time frame here. Because Jude was written for people then, using examples from 2,000 years ago. For us, Jude was written about 2,000 years ago. It's the same passage of time which removes for us any excuse that we have for saying, well, what could this have to do with us? This This is all happening in the past. Just like Jude said, no, no, this is happening among you today. We can read this and say, if we're not careful, it's happening right now. And the longer it takes us to realize that, the more vulnerable we become. So if it's happening among us today, what what are we watching out for? Look at how this starts. First, relying on their dreams. Then there are three things that come after that. Dreams is the same word for visions. Meaning that the implication is that these people, these ungodly people that Judas sounding the alarm about are coming and saying they've had a dream. They've had a vision. And then based on that, what they're actually doing is acting in disobedience to God. And this happens all the time for us today. I'm not going to dismiss dreams entirely, but I am going to be very skeptical when somebody tells me that they're following what they feel led to do in a dream or a vision, and that's the way they start telling me. When they start telling me, I've had a dream, I've had a vision, and I'm going to act upon that, whatever sensors I have are immediately up. My skepticism is so high. The the number one question I'm going to ask is not just does this loosely line up with the word of God, what you're telling me, but is it in full accordance with God's word? I mean, I want to see such rigid obedience and rigid, uh, I, I want you to stay so tight to God's word with whatever you're about to tell me about a dream or a vision that it's obvious to me that this is godly and biblical. Second, I'm going to ask, why did God need to speak to this person in a dream or in a vision, which is so subjective 
and so unusual, so open to misinterpretation, why didn't God use just some of the more ordinary and verifiable means that he has at his disposal to speak with people? So at the outset, I'm going to be very skeptical. Now, here are some circumstances where dreams can make sense, where the Bible's not available, where other Christians are not present, or where someone doesn't know God personally, and therefore they're just not going to know how to pray and otherwise hear from God. That's almost all, for us in the United States of America, that's almost always going to just look like somebody from another part of the world, very close to the gospel, where that person is unlikely to even know a Christian, let alone have access to a Bible. And so if, if I hear a story about Jesus coming to someone in a dream there, they don't know Christian, they don't have a Bible, there, there's no churches close to them, and that dream brings them to faith in Christ, and it causes them then, and the, 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 the reaction to that dream is to go out and find other Christians and begin to read the Bible, to seek out more truth from God, then I can see the usefulness of that dream. That makes sense to me. But when a person has a Bible, when a person has Christian friends or can find other Christians, when they live around biblical churches, why the need for a dream? Why the need for a vision? Why not just use something so much clearer and more consistent? And so here's why I'm worried about dreams and visions. And, here, and the reason why I'm worried is because this is what I normally see happening with them. Very often, when somebody tells you about what God spoke directly to them in some kind of fantastical way, if you listen closely and you ask some discerning questions, what you will find is the hero of that story isn't Jesus Christ. It's the person telling it. So be very careful when somebody elevates themselves above the rest of us. Just telling, them that, telling us that, that, that they're so important, they're so special, they're so extraordinary that God can't or, or, or won't communicate with them kind of just the way he communicates with the rest of us ordinary Joes. And he has to reach out to them in some special way, some kind of magical way. And, and I can give you examples I'm constantly thinking not of what you hear in here, although you should, by all means, track with me, see where I get what I get from the Bible. Question if it's not in the Bible. But I'm constantly also thinking of what you're going to hear. I know you're on social media. I know you've got access to, to preachers on podcasts. I, I know you, can, you get so many other things. I want you to listen really carefully. Are you being taught the Bible or are you being taught a teacher man-centered story where they're kind of the hero, where, where God has done something so extraordinary through them, but you don't know anybody else who's ever had that kind of experience? Be very vigilant to say, is this that? And if it is, run. Run to God's word. God normally speaks to his people through his word. So here, people are trying to... What, what, what ends up happening... Let me just say this one more thing. What ends up happening is when, you, when you're trusting that, what you're actually doing is you're separating yourself from reality. You're making your, the world, you're making your faith even about you. You're, you're turning it into something that's, that's so, so much less than concrete. It's almost ethereal at this point. It's not even liquid. It just becomes kind of a, a weird vapor that you can't even put your hands around. Because it comes to you in dreams and visions that are so subjective. Church, 
anchor your faith in what you can understand and what you can read and what we can gather together. Now, your faith is in Christ. Our faith is not in the Bible, but the Bible informs and helps us to build our faith. Anchor your faith there. And so then, believing in these dreams, being led astray by these visions, that manifests itself in three ways. Number one is defiling the flesh. That probably tracks back to what was said at the end of verse 7, where it said that immorality was a mark of these ungodly who've come into the church, and specifically sexual immorality. It seems that some people were claiming that they'd received a vision from God that sort of updated the biblical sexual ethic. And we see that same kind of thing from all sorts of directions today. People would say, you know, what, what the Bible claims about a, about a sexual ethic, that, that actually no longer applies. That's outdated. That's old. We need to embrace a new, more progressive sexual ethic. Church is not true. God set a sexual ethic up between the first man and the first woman, and he has not changed his intention for humanity and the way we relate to one another in marriage and in the family since that time. And the broader point here is holiness. God's grace is deep, and the welcome of Jesus is for everyone. But don't misunderstand the call to follow Jesus. The call to follow Jesus is a call to leave the world behind and obey Christ as Lord. That's why the next warning is is against those who reject authority. Church, a a biblical holiness where everything from what you say to your conduct to what you're holding on to in this world, including a biblical sexual ethic, that kind of holiness is not optional for any Christian. To be holy means to be pure. Literally means to be set apart. By asking to be united with Christ, which is what, when when we ask Jesus to save us, that's what we're asking. I want to be united to him because we take his death and then we hope in his present, very active life through his resurrection. That's how we can be made holy. We're not made holy by trying to modify our own behavior. We're made holy by being united to Christ. His death pays for our sin. His resurrection is our hope for godliness. So that's where our holiness comes from. And if we're purified by Christ, set apart by him, then we're purified and set apart for him as well. You can't be set in a new pattern by Christ if you stubbornly refuse to leave the pattern of this present world. We must pursue holiness because Jesus is holy holy, and he is who we've been united to. And that happens by staying close to him. Remember, don't be persuaded by the ungodly. Stay with Jesus. Now, this third description of what the ungodly people were doing, this is the most confusing. This is what I was kind of most worried about. So people are running from holiness, and they're rejecting Christ's authority, 
But then we get this really strange phrase. It is a strange phrase. Let's just call it what it is. It says, they blaspheme the glorious ones. All right, this is where I need you to lock in and just kind of hang with me for a minute here because in, in order to understand this, we need to dig into the next verse. We need to go into a few other things. And I think if we do that, we come out with something great on the other side. So look how verse 9 starts. But. That's a contrast. But is a contrasting word. So what verse 9 is about to say kind of opposes how verse 8 is closing out. It's an alternate way from what verse 8 has been saying. And so it says, just to read it again, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now that's an incredible contradiction to make from what's just been said in verse 8. And so to understand it, let's let's ask a couple of questions. Uh, First, this is why you're going to see why this is so confusing. First, when did this happen? This, this idea of, when, when, did this, when did Michael contend with the body of Moses with the devil? When did this happen? Uh, the answer is we don't know. Okay, let's try, let's try a different question. Where can we read more about this? Unfortunately, we can't. Jude is using an exchange here between an angel named Michael and the devil, and he's doing it to illustrate what it looks like to not defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme glorious ones. But here's a little bit of our challenge. He didn't get this from any place in Scripture. It comes from an ancient book called The Assumption of Moses that was around at this time, but unfortunately even that book has been lost to history. We only know that this comes from there because of what early church fathers, early Christian writers wrote about it. So normally, if we were going to study the Bible and we come to a problem passage like this, the very first thing we'd do is we'd go back and read it in context. But even if we wanted to, we couldn't because this is an extra biblical source that's been lost to history. So what do we do now? How do we understand an extra-biblical passage that we can't go back and read that we don't know very much about? The simple answer is, is we get into it, we do our best under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and we trust God's grace as we seek to understand his word. That, that, that's really it. This is a very difficult passage to understand. So when you're not sure what a verse is teaching, here is what you do. You begin, I'm just going to call it this, you begin at the minimum. And by that I mean you ask, at minimum, what must anybody who reads this verse agree is being taught here? Don't try to get into, don't, don't, don't try to say all of the complicated, just things say, what would anybody who just gives a plain reading of this verse conclude is happening here? And I'll tell you this, like 99% of the time when you do that in the Bible... That'll give you plenty to go on. And and that's true here as well. So to see the minimum, just put aside, or we're gonna do we're gonna do a little work in this verse. So again, you gotta have your hard hat on. To see the minimum, put aside the quarrel over Moses' body. Just look at what's happening. The confrontation is between an angel and the devil, 
who's a fallen angel, and let's just ask, what is being commended here? What's, why is this example being held out? What are we being taught to do? And the answer is that the angel, Michael, isn't speaking with his own authority. He's appealing to God's authority. Anybody who reads this verse would have to understand, would have to agree that's what's happening. So Michael could have blasphemed. That's just another word for slander. In this case, it's within the lexical range, so slander. I think, actually, if you just kind of insert slander into here, it's, it, it's a more helpful reading of this, and will will help you to see what's, how this is functioning. So Michael could have said something himself that was slanderous to the devil. But that would have been misplaced because those who know the glory of God, like angels and now like Christians... And those who represent God, like angels and like Christians now, we know that our names mean very little. And our power is very weak. But the name of the Lord is strength. And in him is all power. So when we deal with that which opposes God, spiritual or otherwise... Whatever opposes God, Jude is warning us about contending in those things. Remember verse 3. I wanted to write you one letter, but I must write you to contend for the faith. If you look at Jude 3 in your Bible, it says this whole letter is about contending for the faith. And he's saying whether it be a spiritual principality or anything in the world that would oppose God, we would be unwise. He's warning us against ignoring them. He's warning us against pretending that they don't exist. And he's saying it would be a grave error of an arrogant fool to go it alone against the things that oppose God. But a discerning Christian, close to the Lord, will appeal to the strength of God for that which opposes the things of God. In other words, when we see ungodliness... What's being taught here is confront and contend against ungodliness in the name of the Lord, not in our own strength. That's very simply what's being... It's not hard once you see it. Once you just kind of remove all the the kind of extemporaneous things that are around this, you see that that's what's being taught. So now, let's go back to verse 8. Remember, this is the contrast from how verse 8 ended. And if you go back and ask, what does it mean for an ungodly person to blaspheme or slander glorious ones. And if the answer is illustrated by a time when a godly being wisely avoided slandering the ungodly in his own strength or by his own name, then what we're concluding is the glorious ones in verse 8 are actually evil spirits And the ungodly people who've crept into the church were trying to rebuke them in their own names and by their own power. And Jude is saying, don't follow the ungodly in contending against anything in their own strength, but you, Christian, you contend in the power of the Lord. That's what Jude is saying. And this fits so well with dreams and visions. Dreams and visions, remember, they're all about the person. 
They're all about, I've had a vision. I've had a dream. I'm extraordinary. Trust what God has specially done through me. No, 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 Christian. Don't trust what God has specially done through a man. Trust what God has done through Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.18 says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. There is here somebody who is coming into the, into the church, claiming to have seen visions, and along with that claim, believing that they were more than they really are. And at least a great part of their sin was that they believe themselves to have gone above their true place and, and thought that they were something really special. They thought that they'd gone beyond Jesus. Remember what we're, just remember what we're, he, what we're meant to hear of these verses. Don't follow the ungodly. Stay with Jesus. Stay with Jesus. Don't ever get caught up in thinking that you're beyond him. That you have no need of him. Every single day, get up and confess that you need him as much as you've ever needed him and ask God to show you more of his need for Christ today. Church, make that your opening prayer. And just, just ask this question. What would our lives be like what would happen in our, in our church? What, what would people see from you daily? That's the rhythm of a daily Christian. Get up in the morning, and as you thank God that you're there, confess that you need him now as ever, and ask that your greatest hope today was that you'd be shown more of Christ, more of your need for him, more of his assurance that you're united to him, more of his promise that he will never leave you or forsake you, that you would be more aware than ever that he lives now at the right hand of the Father to be able to make that request on your behalf and to see that you know that when you pray for more of him, his answer will always be yes. Yes, of course you can have more of me today. You will be given more of him when you ask for So again, what are, we, what are we supposed to do from here? This strange story about contending with the devil for the body most. Don't worry about all that. Ask for more of Christ today. Confess your need of him. And then walk in holiness. Follow him. Because if you don't follow him and you follow your own instincts, you will lead yourself, we will lead ourselves to death. So look at the last verse one more time. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. Again, they slander all that they do not understand. They're, they're ignorant. And they are destroyed by what they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They slander what they do not understand. Have you ever known someone? It's kind of a rhetorical question because we've all known somebody. I am this person sometimes. But have you ever known somebody who has a habit of interjecting their opinion on just about every topic. And to everyone else in the room, everybody knows that they're clueless. But in their mind, there's some kind of expert. 
It doesn't matter if the sum total of their knowledge of whatever they're saying will be exhausted by the end of their sentence, or they've never thought about this up until right now, and they're just sort of building the plane as the air. They're wondering where the sentence is going while they're speaking it. They're just going to tell you everything that they think, and they're going to say it like there's no room for disagreement, and they're some kind of a subject matter expert. Now, they're doing that. They're thinking, I have something to say. I need to be heard. People need to listen to me. But what is that met with with everybody else, right? Eye rolls. Thinking, oh, here we go again. Why do we always have to do this with this guy? The ungodly slander what they do not understand. They have no idea what they're talking about, but they're coming in guns blazing. And they're destroyed by it. What's worse, they're they're actually not going to learn. Animals are ruled by instinct. Unless God graciously opens their eyes, people are never going to learn. And, And church, let's make sure we understand this. Our only hope for understanding is that we have, if we have any hope for it at all this morning, is this. God has graciously opened our eyes. Do you want to know what my my greatest fear is when we talk about ungodliness and people rejecting biblical holiness or or, or when we lament that that Jesus isn't followed as Lord by a lot of people? when his authority has been rejected. Do you know what what, one of my greatest, probably my greatest fear of all that? I'm afraid that what will happen is we'll walk out of here angry and smug, indignant that we know better and why can't the rest of this broken world just get godliness figured out like we've figured it out? For us to walk out of here like that, nothing could be further from my hope for us. I hope we hear this and walk out of here doing two things. The first is being infinitely thankful and glad and rejoicing that God has given our blind eyes sight. Because without him, we wouldn't be able to see things for the way they really are either. And so I want to be so thankful that that God has done what he's done, that, that any hint of bitterness is flushed out of you by your joy in Christ. And the second thing that I, I hope for is that, that we will walk out of here not with a disdain for ungodliness, but with an empathy for people who are still blind like we once were, and apart from anything that we could do for ourselves had been offered the grace of Jesus Christ and that would give us not disdain, not indignancy, but motivation for telling people that Jesus is real, that he's alive, that you can have new life in him too. Folks, we don't resent people because they aren't Christians. We praise God that he's made us alive in Christ and we appeal to everyone by telling them that Jesus is near to them now and he can be known and live inside of them forever. 
The Apostle Paul says that God makes his appeal through us. What kind of an appeal is it if what people mostly see from us is anger and a hypercriticalness? Because Jesus is our head, we can reject ungodliness, we can pursue holiness, and we can come under his authority while at the same time making a gracious appeal for those who do not know Christ to come and follow him with us. We're in the right place when we're with Jesus. And some of the best parts of the gospel message is that there's room with him for anyone who wants to come close. So you stay close to Jesus and invite other people to get close with you. God is making his appeal through us. Let us not look to others like we are mad at that, like that, that appeal is one of anger, but is an appeal of grace and love. Stay close to Jesus. Let's pray together. God, may our church be ambassadors of your grace from the kingdom of Christ to a kingdom shaky as it is built in this world. There is a better way. May we reject ungodliness. May we people known as set apart Pure. We must follow Christ as our Lord. We must work in his own strength. Do that among us and make our appeal to those who don't know him. One that holds out an abundant grace and mercy. Where people know there's room for them near to Jesus. We draw near to him, he draws near to us. Do that in each of us and in us together, we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.